0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. At a moment when the world has tipped over into irreversible violence and corruption, a divinity contacts a righteous man. The man is directed to build a giant ship and bring aboard animals who will spend an indefinite amount of time living, sleeping, and eating alongside Noah and his family, The rain begins to fall and these survivors take refuge on the ark. After 40 days, the survivors disembark and then have to figure out how to create a new settlement as the waters recede. This cryptic elliptical ancient story has inspired theological commentary, architecture, and children's toys, giving us an abundance of metaphors and narratives to understand our past, present, and future climate crises. Our continuing attempts to critically examine the ARC narrative and its long afterlife in our imagination is the subject of Jeffrey J. Cohen and Julian Yates' new book, Noah's Archive, just published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2023. Jeffrey Cohen is Dean of Humanities at the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at Arizona State University. Jeffrey's previous books include Stone, An Ecology of the Inhuman, Hybridity, Identity, and Monstrosity in Medieval Britain, and Of Giants, Sex, Monsters, in the Middle Ages. Julian Yates is H. Fletcher Brown, Professor of English and Material Culture at the University of Delaware. Julian's previous books include Of Sheep, Oranges, and Yeast, A Multispecies Impression, and Error, Misuse, Failure, Object Lessons from the English Renaissance. Welcome to the podcast, Julian and Jeffrey. Thank Thank you. Happy to be here. What is the central argument of Noah's archive?
0: Julian, what is the central argument? Because I'm never sure on that.
1: I know whenever I see a question like that I'm gosh oh gosh the book is over now that's someone else's problem um so John so yeah rather than than give in to my worst uh worst proclivities and to throw the question back at you John because I we we basically Jeffrey and I would both much prefer to hear you talk than, than for us to respond to your questions is the truth um but the the central argument is that if we tend to sort of think of arcs as achieved objects, as uh, as uh, you know, and if you sort of take the sort of the, the the sort of standard sort of visuals that we have from the Genesis story of landfall, rainbow, uh, happy animals streaming off an arc into a, a new world, moving forward. That if you actually take the time to reread the Genesis story or just read the Genesis story, then it throws you into a question of making, of building, uh, of process. And it asks you to, to, to grapple with all the very difficult questions about inclusion, occlusion who's left off the arc and the sets of relationships or the necessary relationships between including some aboard an arc uh, and excluding others. What does it mean to try and actually reduce the world to a finite structure where you're claiming that you have everything you need on board to start over? And so in a a very kind of challenging way, uh, what we call arc thinking is returning the story to that puzzling sense of process and the exposure of anyone who actually sort of reads the story to all the questions from the mundane uh you know what what what, what you know putting your hand up and sort of so when we design this how uh, how much space do we have? All of these sort of minute design questions you re-encounter and understand also in a scaled up version of sort of profound ethical political questions. Jeffrey, how do I do?
0: Add a little footnote to that because that was better articulated than I could ever even approach. Uh, One of the reasons why we wrote the book is that with all of this in mind, that thinking about the arc is thinking about preservation, futurity, ethics, you name it, is that we live in a time of climate change and climate catastrophe and whether we are conscious of it or not, we tend to deploy the Ark and the Noah story as a trope that helps us to understand what survival during this time of catastrophe might be. One of the things that we hope we achieved in the book was to show that there are alternative ways of narrating the Noah story and that some of them will give us a wider sense of refuge than the traditional narrowed version of the Ark And its you know, kind of idea of a singular vessel preservation might present.
2: Reading your book, I was struck by at the archive that you have put together. You were both trained as literary scholars and your earlier work focuses on early English and Renaissance texts. But this book weaves together just such a broad range of sources from conversations you've had with modern art builders, pop culture. There's a great um, section on toy history uh, why did this project call for a break from traditional disciplinary boundaries?
0: Maybe a, a way for my my way in is to reframe that question as what is it about the break in traditional boundaries that called you to this project? Meaning that it's the kind of project that you can't do if you are if you really it's the kind of project that you cannot do if you self-relegate to a single media Because this is a story of conservation, climate change, catastrophe, because it's a story that crosses the millennia, because it's a story we cannot stop telling, uh, you have to look at all the ways in which narrative keeps instantiating itself. So uh, one of the great thrills of being able to work on this project together is that it enabled us to browse, get to know, um, invent with A copious archive that spans ages, medias, tropes, genres, you name it. Um, There's something really attractive about that because humans think their stories in various forms that converge.
1: Right. And so one of the things that I think in terms of sort of tracking different fault lines through the archive is that the sort of the question to which different Uh, media, different realizations of arcs in in, in different materials make visible or audible or thinkable different aspects of the story. And I think it's also fair to say, Jeffrey, that, you know, especially with Stone, that, you know, you and I have all both sort of I mean, do you consider yourself a literary scholar?
0: Yeah, no, I'm not even sure what that is. That doesn't seem like a good designation. You know, in
1: other words, what I'm just trying to say, John, is that there's a, that when there was a sense in which we were. I mean, you know, I mean, you you, you, you know, from monsters and giants on, that they're, that you know, they only partially belong in 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 literary texts. So there's a certain we. I think both of us have always been fairly sort of happy with uh with with sort of straying or just you know. Uh, beyond our periods but also a sense that you know the story of the ark is a, a story that is a part of a general text that's that's sometimes in stories but also in the world around you uh you know if you take a if you if you uh just you know take a look at the google maps version of your city or or just wander around you're going to run into arks you know sometimes they would even be called arks you know daycare centers mostly uh um um church shops right resale shops you know there's sort of the arc becomes this sort of movable trope so it's in the world uh part of our infrastructures and that's really the kind of infrastructural approach to reading that we sort of cultivate so for me at least the Noah's Ark book um is a kind of realization of what was the sort of default method uh, I think for both of us, for for quite some for for, for previous books, and and it, it, I'm very happy working that way. Uh, partly because it's it sort of communicates to me the relevance of stories, um, deep old stories, in continuously making the world around us. Sometimes keeping it the same in very challenging, difficult, unpleasant ways, but also always sort of creating opportunities for something else to happen
0: this subtitle of julian's last book was a multi-species impression and i think really that word impression signifies so much of what julian and i share as we try to think about the ways in which various things that may be narrative in a word form or maybe just is an object exerting its eccentric agency but the ways in which those things tend to impress themselves within the human world and register all kinds of after effects so uh i think one of the things that made our collaboration seem natural is that we're both predisposed to think outside of taxes just the, the way we approach the work that we do in the world
1: and john there was one other thing in your question that i thought was interesting and we haven't responded to and that was why these texts why these why these things and to a certain extent i think we would both we, we would both be very comfortable with and expect people to to because this is sort of what happened when we were writing uh it became a sort of joke for us that there was always another arc that we didn't know about and 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 didn't have time now to write about so it it's not a complete archive uh it it is an inde- it's an indefin- indefinite work if that's a word if that's a word um the um in in terms of that these were the materials that that clearly sort
2: of belonged in the book they sort of told us that they needed to be there i'm sure there are more i think many of the people that would be listening to this podcast or working on dissertations or maybe thinking about a book project and and might be um drawn to the kind of interdisciplinary work you're talking to what what advice would you give to a scholar, uh, maybe an early career scholar who's thinking about putting together a, a project like this what perils what possibilities await them?
1: ask lots of people uh and and keep asking um and uh but I mean when when push comes to shove for me you have to sort of I mean for me it's about sort of you what, what work do you like what work uh makes you want to get out of bed in the morning and read and write and and try to be honest with yourself about doing that and there are always pros and cons to any set of decisions um but the only thing i think i can control about (laughs) about the profession is, is the, the work that I'm able, you know, to do and, 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 and feel is makes me, makes me sort of feel like I want to keep doing work.
0: And related to that is also the question of how much risk are you willing to take? Yeah. If you do a project that is eccentric to the ways in which projects are traditionally done, uh, you are taking a risk. Mm -hmm. I think it's good to own that, Um, but to also be cognizant of the fact that it might not work out you might not actually find the audience that your project deserves and that is a possible outcome of any book any research project and I think fundamentally it's the the earliest risk you take if you're working on a dissertation are you writing it to please your dissertation advisors and readers are you work are you writing it to call into being an audience that you want to read rather than the audience that you know Um, and I, I think in the end, uh, you know, respect yourself for the choices you make, you may mm-hmm. wind up making a more cautious choice. And that's also that's
2: fine. fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I like both of those points. Um, Embracing inconclusiveness or just uh, reconciling yourself to the fact that that your archive is going to be expanded on, it's going to be taken up by others. And and yeah, maybe being honest about uh, the, the level of risk you're comfortable with, um, that, that both of those seem like great pieces of advice to me. Um, th- there's a line that gets repeated throughout the book quote, maybe the worst thing you can ever believe is that you are no longer on an arc, end quote. It's a kind of refrain. Uh, Can you talk us through that claim and why there is so much peril in this belief?
0: One of the things that Julie and I came to realize in the process of writing the book is that you can never get outside of what the arc figures. You just disembark it in order to wind up in another space that can in Ark itself, very easily, and in fact, we were very drawn to figures who either refused to board or refused to leave. To get off! Refuse to get off. There's a, and <laughs> you know, we have this great um scene of Mrs. Noah praying for rain rather than wanting to disembark from the Ark and trying to think through what that actually means. Uh, Ark without end.
1: I think the also the 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 other part of the line right is that. There's such a pull towards landfall and disembarkation. And we were struck by the way in which that while the Ark seems to serve as a transit device, right from one world to another world, that moment of disembarkation of landfall is a danger moment in terms of what comes next, because it's also a moment of forgetting. It's a moment at which what the Ark was, you know theoretically that's the the whole world right there, right. And then w- what happens at the moment of landfall is that the Ark disappears but becomes the entirety of the world that now exists. And so it's a radical moment of forgetting and also um, of the allure of of complete um, destruction of everything that came before. And so on the one hand, the aspects of the story that in other words, this is fiction, that the inside of the structure can become completely synonymous with the the outside, that there's no remainders, it's a complete restart, there's nothing left to remember. And so it's a foundation effect, or it's an attempt to try and create a new ground. So the arc is still there, even as you think you're not on it um and so it's this this moment at which um you know you, you sort of have to just put put your hand up and protest but the entire in other words if you buy into the narrative at that point of getting off it's like the allure because it's you know all the affect and emotion it's fun to get off we want to get off everyone's getting off you know it's like getting off a plane That you know everyone's off with the seat belts to hell with the the seat belt sign we're still taxiing i want off um but with the ark the 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 problem is that you actually have to believe that the outside no longer exists that everyone died uh, when in fact you know maybe not maybe there are whole other ways of being that your act of of exiting the ark and thinking that you're no longer on it is actually uh making impossible making unthinkable not seeing
0: um i i also appreciate that you called that line a refrain because i I think that is what it became for us where you know the book has a certain iterative structure to it and yet keeps coming back to certain things that either we knew or we had to remind ourselves of so who first wrote that line i have no idea maybe one of us said it to the other and we just wrote it down but we kept anchoring ourselves in that repetition of the line to remind ourselves that, you know, this is not um, this is not a book about arriving at a final destination. And that, that's why the last section is called landfallings, plural. Um, there, There is no way off. but There are many ways to advance into possible futures.
1: Actually, it's not plural. It's just landfalling. Do you? Is it? Yeah, don't worry. It's a gerund.
0: Damn it, Julian. Now we have to go back and rewrite the book.
1: No, because no, Tom, no. It's now fine. we have
0: to make it coincide with I'm my calling
1: memory. is a process. It, it's something you 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 um you you want to get done with. Um yeah, I mean it's a refrain because you you have to it's you know, it's it's um there's so much work that goes into remembering to forget things. So you have to counter them by remembering to remember.
0: That's, That's a
2: good it. way to put it. Yeah, that's great. That, I think, really leads well into the next question, which is your second chapter titled No More Rainbows. Um, r- reminds us that the, the conclusion of the flood story is much less of a conclusion than we often remember. You examine what the rainbow means, which is not at all clear in either the source text or the various cultural moments that you reflect on, as well as the questions raised by Noah's uh, post-diluvian drunkenness and Ham's curse. W- what have been some of the interpretive cruxes in that part of the biblical story? The the landfall, the
0: disembarkation. I I think this goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier in the purpose of the book. So, you know, everyone knows the story of Noah and the ark from Genesis, except no one really knows it as it's in Genesis. And the assumption from all the mostly juvenile uh, retellings of it is that it ends with the rainbow, right? That's the moment of celebration, that's the punctuation mark. It's kind of in, you know, the rainbow as. an arc that forms a dome over the new world and seals it in, except, you know, we, there's a point at which we call Genesis, we call Genesis an anthology of beginnings and beginnings again. And it's a, it's a book of incompletions. Uh, It's a spur to more stories and the rainbow is in no way an end point. It's pretty clear in the, it's pretty clear in Genesis that, you know, for, God, it's a reminder for him not to send any more floods. It's not really clear uh, what that moment means, other than he's pleased with the sacrifice of Noah, who's left the ark and sacrificed some animals. But does it mean that God at that moment has realized that floods are useless, that people are always going to be as wicked as they were beforehand? Mm. Uh, What is this? What is this moment in the development of God's relationship with humans? And all kinds of different trajectories happen. Uh, Jewish tradition goes one way. Christian tradition goes another at that point. But our point is the story keeps unfolding long afterwards. Um, It doesn't go very well. Yeah, I mean, maybe also one of the worst things that can happen is you outlive the heroic portion of your story. <laughs> Noah, He's gone on just a bit too long and you know, lost scene in a really humiliating series of circumstances.
2: Yeah, one of the things that I learned from your book was the rabbinical interpretation that his drunkenness might have something to do with like the potency of soil after the flood. Is mm-hmm. that right? Or, or perhaps there's some um, some lesson here. He should have planted figs instead of um, wine grapes or something like that.
0: Well, and John noticed, too, that that is part of the rabbinic tradition of rebuking Noah for his mistakes. It's, so whereas in Christian tradition, Noah prefigures Jesus and is perfect in his obedience to God and blameless all the way through. So you have to kind of conveniently forget that he got drunk and what was going on there. In rabbinic tradition, he's much more problematic. So he makes a series of mistakes and things start to spin out of control at that moment. And maybe it did have to do with planting grapes when he shouldn't have. Maybe it had to do with his ignorance of, you know, what what the soil was like. Or maybe even if you go back even earlier, it has to do with the fact that when God told him to build an ark, he built an ark. Whereas other figures from the same narrative, that is to say Cain, Abraham, Moses, when God declares things to them, they feel free to argue with God about those things. And God listens, you know, the, the God of Genesis likes to be argued with. No one never argues with him. He simply builds the ark and consigns the rest of the world to perish, only his family are the right. ones who are saved. So there's a tradition in Midrash where Noah is very much taken to task for his failures. And
2: something else you discussed in that chapter is um the the political the 20th 21st century political debates about the significance of the rainbow. I think it's like a, a right-wing meme, right, take back the rainbow or something like that.
0: It was the arc right? experience in Kentucky, Julian,
2: yeah. you talk okay. about that?
0: Well, that was um,
1: that was the the image that greeted us at the end of a visit to Ark Encounter um, in Kentucky. Um, I mean, I'm not sure I really want to dwell vastly on that, um, in the sense that it um, it's one iteration of the rainbow. But it's an attempt to to reclaim it, right, from its 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 um, iconic significance as a sort of uh, badge of inclus inclusivity uh and turn it into something else that is apparently prior um mean, I that i mean it's a very challenge it was a very challenging unpleasant experience um i'm not sure that i mean it, I, I, john i think the way you i, I was it, it's one moment in that chapter it's not a, a vast it's not something that we treat at vast length although we have written about it outside the book Uh, in much much greater detail uh, when we actually sort of do a a sort of write-up of what it was like to visit Ark Encounter.
0: Um, Uh, I was gonna say John I think what you get at is the you know the rainbow is an ambiguous symbol so it can be a promise, inclusivity, futurity, can be trippy, groovy. It can be the rainbow of pride. It can be the rainbow of, you know, uh, valuing identities that sometimes get devalued. There's something that's really beautiful about a rainbow. However, uh, it's also a weapon made of weather. It's literally a rainbow. It is a long bow in the sky. It's God's armament. And yet God doesn't put it in the sky to point it toward earth. He points it towards himself to remember never again when it comes to sending floods. So we linger over the complexity rather than like to see it reduced to any kind of facile political message.
1: Right. And it's that ambivalence, right? The co the, the correlation of it as a promise and a, a, and a marker of futurity with also being a a weapon or a a weapon in suspension, a bow, a, a bow that has been placed in the sky, but which could come back as a, as a, as a, as a weather weapon. Um, that drives the chapter that that core ambivalence uh i mean we like rainbows i mean who doesn't like a rainbow uh right i mean you it but there's there's um it, we're tuned again to the the way in which the rainbow pr- has sort of tends to default to a certain set of affects and feelings that when you actually sort of expose yourself to the full range of ways it gets deployed Uh, it becomes a much more uncomfortable, unruly sort of little icon.
0: Yeah. And John, we could even put this more strongly, right? Among the things we like about rainbows is when they signify gay, lesbian, bi, trans, questioning, inclusivity, right? We want every identity possibly included in any refuge that's going to be fashioned and it alarms us. When somebody redeploy[s] the rainbow in order to right. slam a door yeah. on it, it's...
1: right? And I think for me, the tension in that chapter is also the way that the the and I think this is actually quite important that when you say that that there is just something for you know, I love seeing a rainbow. It makes me happy. I go, oh look, a rainbow, and um, the way in which that sort of sort of quasi automatic response. Get synced up knowingly and unknowingly to fund particular versions of the world is something that I think is at issue in that chapter. It's a programming of 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 responses, or you know.
2: Yeah. How have modern novelists like Jeanette Winnerson contributed to how we think about these endings? And endings in scare quotes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um Voting for Beginners, uh, which is 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 just a wonderfully uh, naughty title uh for a novel. I love that. Um, um I mean I I, I mean it, I don't I don't think of it as just Jeanette Winterson. I mean Jeffrey, you should just we should do collaborative overlap here, as it were, uh instead of mutual or mutual interruption uh because i don't think for us of that novel uh, is really that separate from a whole slew of texts that are i mean that are sort of written in the 1980s um the uh, not wanted on the voyage um and um the, julian Barnes's is, julian Barnes. is more than 10 and a half chapters um and even the sort of jeanette winterson's sort of earlier novel um the oranges are not the only fruit um the, I mean, it seemed like at that moment there was a an interest in sort of opening the Genesis story and exposing it to uh what a series of novelists could see as the narrative potential of of sort of what's there and not there in the story. So mm-hmm. that, um, um, I mean, that so there's in a the kind of an explicitly archival uh cast. To the um, the uh, the um, their approach to to the story,
0: there is and Winterson I think is especially important to us because it was her playfulness that called to us. So there are plenty of uh, arc stories in which the arc becomes like this fascistic, horrible, horrible space. Wenderson doesn't have time for that. She really is just trying to multiply possibilities, open up the world, tell counter narratives, put as many stowaways as possible on the arc, tell as many other and differing stories, and just keep things in motion. So, you know, we have this key scene um, from... oranges are not the only fruit, where it's a brillo pad that's a chimpanzee on the arc. It's a collage arc where all the animals are made of different kinds of materials. But it becomes for the narrator um, or the, 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 the protagonist an arc of play in which iteration and possibility go hand in hand. And that's what opened us up to thinking that a lot of people know their arcs through toys and there's something that is joyful about toys and repetition and possibility opening up so uh, we liked how winterson takes that and turns it into a, a narrative piece
1: right and in 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 that novel the 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 play is also part of a, a refuge it's a sort of zone of play but it's also a zone of refuge with a friend essentially an, an older woman elsie um who's um uh, and then in the um in boating for beginners um the i mean it, the the novel is a um i mean it's almost impossible to describe and it's it's wonderful absurdity um i think everyone should just go and read it now it's hard to find i think
0: is that is that the novel you would
2: recommend someone start with if they were going for beginners
0: more? i mean it's it's a you know it's kind of like time travel to um it's it, it's a an error uh, in feminism, where so many challenges to patriarchy seem new and joyful, and I think now you know it feels a little bit dated, but it's kind of got uh, the seeds of all kinds of possibilities that were to follow from it.
1: It's it's a it's um, beguiling as a novel in its um, in the amount of fun that is being taken in its writing. And it, I mean, actually, I mean, I think actually stylistically, I, you had a question about um, sort of um, uh, advice to, um, you know, potential dissertators. I mean, you know, if I can, if I could write like Jeanette Winterson, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be very happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in an ac- in academic, pro- I mean, there's a certain joy that's being taken in um, inhabiting a story. Trying to be faithful to a version of a story that you have in your head that you're trying to explore, while also troping it as you're doing it. And I mean, it—it's—it's a. I mean, the notion that you're going to turn Noah into someone who was running a cruising business on the Euphrates uh, River has just a, a certain amount of sort of mundane charm about it that it's hard to resist. You, the you, idea that you would just, without explanation, have a little orange devil running around, who's never fully explained in the story, that in fact the, one of the one of the protagonists, because there are several smuggles, uh, an elephant named Tribo ab- uh, uh, onto the ark, about whom we find out nothing. Um there's a certain level of willing of of, of of willingness to expose your novel to um to narrative threads that don't get resolved that I think is just sort of deeply fun. It's a terribly short novel too.
0: It is, and but Julian, I think what you're really emphasizing too is that we learned a lot from the text that we read yeah. about how to be um properly respectful to the possibilities that they have, and then try to enact that in our scholarship. And I'd say another fundamentally influential text that we grappled with early on was uh, Natalie Diaz's poem. It was the animals, which is about an arc gone wrong in the arc as a fractured frame and how much it means to break it to right to break that frame in order to imagine possibilities beyond beyond the enclosure of the arc. So, we, we we call the book Noah's Archive. It's an archive of possibilities. And I think one of the things that we tried to do is not not interpret other people's texts, but to open up the possibilities that they enable and to try to think with them and think alongside right. them.
2: You, you mentioned toys, and uh, I, I think I had this um, the Playmobil arc that you discuss in the chapter oh, right. I, I had that or i remember the commercials on tv or or something i definitely had uh, uh, some nostalgia there can, can you talk to us about children's toys and how um toy manufacturers have have um appropriated the the arc story did you have the electric motor for it i i
0: don't think it had did it have a motor i don't you think you
1: so. can you can you could you can get a you can you can give it which is just a wonderful idea
0: it's an optional battery operated motor yeah.
1: that
2: you can attach to it. Okay, I'm going to be on eBay later. Um <laughs> indulging in nostalgia. It's and-
0: for all ages, so you know. <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Okay. Him, I wasn't uh, this was the moment in the book when we also brought with us our children. So we right. talked about the toys but as mediated for me through my daughter for Julian through his son, because we felt like their experience of toys had opened up some possibilities of how to deal with pieces of the world, narratives of the world, which is to say children seldom respect the stories that they're supposed to be enacting with their toys and will bring them into all kinds of new directions. So if my daughter is putting her Barbie dolls on the ark and you know, turning it into her own little version of a feminist utopia, that's great. That's kind of like one of the trajectories of the story. If children are indifferent to what they're supposed to learn from these Stories. um Well, then, what m- what might we say about people in earlier times and the ways in which they used the story of Noah's Ark as something not not to reverence, but to play with, to generate possibilities in the world with?
1: And I think the, I mean, we don't we don't spend a lot of time on this in the book, but I mean, one of the one of the things I receive from sort of toy history is the the way in which the Noah's Ark um, story was part of the earliest sort of production of toys that uh, certainly in a kind of um uh from about the 18th century on um and i at least in my sort of as, as i've sort of uh visited various museums and things have been constantly sort of surprised and sometimes moved just i mean i remember being at the imperial war museum and looking at um um uh a noah's ark constructed um during the first world war out of out of set out of sort of spent munitions by uh uh an english prisoner and in other words this is a sort of default kind of um sort of way in which it it's part of toy history as a story i mean my fantasy is because it's the it's the it's the ideal sort of um from a parental perspective toy you, you know the children you know the, the the act of beginning play is is unloading it and putting it back together and you get to put it all back together and take it with you when you're done so that landfall and uh sort of embarkation and landfall are, are actually kind of provide a kind of narrative structure for a play event um i think that i mean that's i mean i mean it's interesting you said we did it sort of absolutely we were sort of both i think retrospectively allowed ourselves to walk down one of memory's lanes in terms of reimagining childhood for our children but also re-experiencing toys a second time as part of what parenting actually is
0: and how parenting always goes wrong so as julian yeah. said ultimately right you want your child to clean up and put all the animals back in the ark how often does that happen actually not that often right. and It turns into something completely different, which is great and creative.
2: Yeah, I I love that emphasis on irreverent play, um, which is, yeah, so generative. Well, play is productive, not as rep- not just as repetition,
1: not, not that there's anything that's just repetition. But.
0: Mm-hmm. It right. also amazed us that when we looked on the Amazon page for the Playmobil arc, you know, also purchased with the arc is very often a Playmobil manger set and that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's kind of the Christian story from arc mm-hmm. to manger. Sure, why not? But also purchased with it was a safari set um, including one with dinosaurs in it. And it's just like all right, you know it's a it's about a mixing of worlds. It's about what you actually love, cherish, and want to preserve. Um, it opens up much wider stories. The third chapter
2: uh, surveys, in part, uh, artistic representations of the flood from Gustave Doré to the sixth century Vienna Genesis. This is the first time I had seen um, that latter um, illustration, um, and, and it's it's really fascinating. Um, what are your favorite of the visual representations you discuss in the book?
0: It's really hard. It's like choosing your favorite child.
2: I know.
1: And then, of course, you sort of all the ones that didn't go in that you wish could have gone in. and <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, mean, the I women... am the
0: favorite of the moment, Julian, but it's you not. I know that it's my favorite. What's your image? Okay. So I often talk about a William de Braille's one right. as that, that got me thinking only because I'd seen it in Baltimore and I just could not get it out of my right. mind. But the one I've been thinking about a lot recently is the Nathan Altman one. So Altman was a, a Jewish artist, refugee from Germany. Uh created his amazing print at a time when all German Jews had lost their citizenship. Jeffrey, this is audio
1: only, so should we describe it briefly?
0: So, (laughs) if you get the book, you'll see it too. Um, you're, You're right. It is a beautiful picture of a dog baying up to the rain, and the rain is coming down like slashes. The dog is on an island At first, it seems like it's an island with a couple of pine trees and the dog is by itself, but on closer examination, you see that the pine tree is actually a bunch of ravens holding onto a stick with one raven circling. It has no space. The dog looks up to the sky and is wailing miserably. And in the background, you can see the ark sailing away. So the dog has been left to the outside of the ark. It's got nothing left in the ark. The refuge sails away. And for Altman to have created this image at a time when uh, his very identity as Jew made him outcast, liable to be left behind, you know, a a body that can be taken to a work camp. This is a powerful moment that, um, especially with the, recent burgeoning rise in anti-Semitism has just been a thing that's been on my mind. So I, I think about that picture a lot, actually. Julian, how about you? What's your favorite of the moment?
1: Oh, I'm terrible at favorites of the moment. I mean, the, the Altman image is, is arresting. And I mean, for me, I think the thing that um, it, it part, part of the signature of that image is the way in which the rain there's almost a sort of synesthesia about the 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 way the rain is drawn as slashing lines so that it 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 it's almost as though the rain actually provides the audio for the image mm-hmm. that it, it's a scream the 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 the, the, the lament the, um, of the dog uh you know is is this sort of abandoned companion animal um you know who wasn't companionable enough um to make it aboard is is rendered sort of viscerally in the actual um medium. I mean so that that is you know that's absolutely it. No I mean I think I, I I'm 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 worried for listeners, right right if they you know to have people describe images to them that they can't see. Um, I think it, to make good I mean the 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 William de Braille's uh image, which is at the, the um the Walters, Art museum in um, in Baltimore. I mean, I'll just sort of describe that very very briefly. There is no ark. Um, it's um, what you see is gold and green, and the green is the water, the waves underneath the ark of a flooded world. And as you look more closely at the green, you start to see um, figures of people, figures of birds uh figures of um livestock all in discrete layers and the closer you look they all seem to be sleeping or suspended and it presents a sort of the 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 on the one hand the sense of loss but you're very uncertain about what you ought to be feeling as you look at that image um because it is a figure of suspension it's it's almost like they could come back alive Um, but in the moment they're not, and there is no arc. So where are you supposed to be in terms of where you're located? And you're just looking at this, it's a very powerful image.
0: And that question of location is one that really fascinates us with images. So John, you brought up the Vienna Genesis. One of the reasons that one really stuck in our mind is the Vienna Genesis illustrates a pyramid shaped arc as it sails away, leaving people clinging to rocks. This is the very first illustrated Bible that we possess. Number one, right? The the first one to survive. The fact that the artist chose to stand with the drown depicts something that is not in Genesis. There's no such moment there. Um, Really spoke to us as being an important anchoring moment. And indeed, throughout history, that is a common vantage point. Not to imagine yourself on the ark in, in that space of safety but to imagine what it's like to have been left behind by that arc. And you know, it's too late, it's already gone, you've got moments left, and here's what the artist depicts standing with the drown. <laughs>
2: thank you for taking time for to describe those images i know some of the listeners are commuting while listening to these podcasts so good <laughs> please wait to to google image you know, search for these images until um you've uh, um arrived at your destination and disembarked yourself Um, I learned from your book that the inside of the Ark has been metaphorized as a way of thinking about ordering knowledge, understanding memory and history, hierarchizing, and taxonomizing. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about how the organization of the Ark has been thought, reimagined, um, described?
0: Um, So... Genesis gives very little information about what the inside of the ark is like. It seems to be maybe that it's three levels and we have a number of cubits, but we don't really have much more beyond that. And honestly, even the three levels, what does that mean? Can there be a bilge at the bottom? Is it three levels plus other possibilities? So you you don't get much when it comes to imagining what the interior is like, and you don't get much when it comes to imagining what life is like. I think one of the pivotal moments for both of us was There's a moment in Midrash where after the ark has already docked and you know life is going on, when one of the sons of Noah, I think, (laughs) is asked, "Well, what was life like on the ark way back when?" You know, now that humans have resettled, and he says, "Well, it was terrible." Uh, as soon as we were done feeding all the animals during the day, the nocturnal animals woke up. It was nothing but chores and cleaning, and in fact, you know, life on that ark was horrible. I'm glad to be out of it. It's not a thing that you ever imagine, especially because there's so many visualizations of tranquility, suspension, happiness, peace on the ark. Um, so. You know, just figuring out how an arc works, I think, is such an invitation to the imagination. But you've got to make a choice. Is it going to be a utopia or a dystopia? Um, and throughout history, you know, people have gone each way. Um, there, there are as many different ways of conceptualizing the inside of the arc as there are permutations of the human imagination.
1: Absolutely. the um, That sense that here you have... I mean, because an arc is essentially drawing a boundary and saying, here's an inside, everything in here survives, everything outside dies. Okay, three lines, (laughs) maybe a window, and a door that's closed from the outside. And uh, yeah, make it. And that act of trying to then actually plan, imagine that inside space is a moment of well, I mean, I, I mean, um, one of the things I thought I was listening to Jeffrey, and I was thinking, yeah, absolutely. One of one of the strangest things is that uh, sort of contemporary stand-up comedians who who do uh, bits on the arc uh, end up sounding a lot like seventeenth um, century, sixteenth century theologians who are trying to do a bit. On the arc. In other words, the there's a there's a kind of wonderful sort of discursive leveling in terms of of what it means to become a, a reader, Imagine uh, imaginer, reenactor of that story that um I find just sort of deeply compelling. And um what's compelling to me about it is the way in which uh the most profound questions. Arise out of um this this sort of the the you know the difficulty posed by trying to imagine this insight, like how would it work? How literal are my instructions? How figurative or metaphorical are my instructions? Uh which bits of this story shall I allegorize? Which shall I not allegorize? And and it's all of those sets of challenges. Uh, which leads readers and reenactors to have to actually wrestle with what it means to try and make a world and the consequences of of, of what you're unmaking by making that world. Um, I mean we could get into I mean, the the but the the, the list of, of of possible interiors is, is almost endless. It's
0: infinite. It's absolutely <laughs> infinite. So much depends on how much cheating you allow yourself. Will you say that everyone is in a kind of suspended animation where bodily needs go away? Or will you imagine what it's like to need a sufficient amount of food to feed all those animals and humans? And also, what do you do with all the manure? Where is that going if the ark is self-enclosed? What kind of feeding system? Like the minute you start to open it up, um, it becomes too big of a world to almost imagine in its details. And even the most specific imaginings, Cheat at several places, you know, and it can be as simple as saying, Well, there was one type of bear that was put on there. It's the prototype of all bears, grizzlies, polars, you name it, but only one type. And you you can keep taking that back so that you reduce your number of animals to a manageable amount.
1: So, what happens then is, in the course of actually designing it and imagining it, you make a series of decisions without being fully aware that you're, say, um, taking on board a theory of evolution or how species works or where race comes from or what a family is, what a family needs. All of these get produced or become your your sets of assumptions become visible by the way in which this sort of uh, vacant uh, sort of space gets filled in. there's a wonderful um, art historian uh, Hubert Damish who who um, actually ventured that um, um, that uh, the Genesis narrative was really one you know one of the first texts of risk management which exposed people to the kinds of sort of um, uh, sort of having to think about space and process um, and building and construction in those ways that was an invitation to doing that.
0: I think this- you were oh. good enough to share your questions ahead of time with us, and we know what we're moving toward, but uh, it, it is a discussion about how the arc starts to sail into narratives of the enslavement of people stolen from Africa and brought to the Americas. Uh, this kind of arc thinking that we've been describing has a horrendous Uh, historical effect of enabling people to think through what are the minimal conditions of survival on a boat for long durations and that occurs by thinking through how each animal needs a certain amount of biomass in order to have its minimal um, conditions of survivability and it's the easiest thing in the world once you've calculated what it takes to keep an animal alive for a certain amount of time to reduce human beings to animals. Uh, Think about them in terms of minimal survivability and start to ship them on slave ships and uh, really realize the blueprint for Noah's Ark in a horrendous way that still haunts us, honestly.
2: I think that leads us into Um, The 1787 diagram of the ship Brooks, which was created in part to advance abolitionist causes in the 18th century, or, or circulated in abolitionist publications. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this diagram fits within the tradition of arc thinking i
1: mean i think i'd want to acknowledge larry shannon's work in the accommodated animal right as a point of arrival in early modern studies and the the coda to that book which explicitly um sort of draws a connection between john wilkins the image of the uh box-like arc with the animals sort of uh inside uh from john wilkins essay towards a real character and a philosophical language which from 1668 and there's a, a striking sort of formal similarity not that i'd want to sort of necessarily you know there's no direct connection necessarily between those two images um that's quite striking in terms of the way space is being conceived um, so in terms of a sort of, uh, you know, that, that's something that resonated for us and was something, I mean, we're not the first people to uh, point out the visual similarities between that. But the the, the Brooks image is, is is striking because it, uh, it I mean, it, it, it circulated so widely and in so many different forms that it became, and it was also, it looks like a plan. But it is a memorial reconstruction. My, 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 if, if my memory serves, the um, the 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 pers- the captain who was um, um, invited on board the ship had to sort of bring out the dimension that it had to be reconstructed uh, by someone who wasn't actually aboard the ship. I maybe I this is what I remember from my footnotes.
0: That, that's um, right and the amazing thing is that the picture right. doesn't even show the sheer number of people that were right. on the ship. Uh it's just the maximum number of people that could be illustrated as part of that diagram.
1: Right. So that it's it's a complicated image that isn't quite it is it it that, that sort of takes on a, a life of its own, in terms of it being also, I think, one of the first uses of a, a of an image in that very particular kind of of, of way, uh, as a as a as a as a badge of a of a movement.
0: And um, from that movement, it sails into all kinds of possibilities. You know, the the image itself was used to raise awareness about the inhumanity of the slave trade. Uh, one of our chapters explores the trail that the Ark kind of sails through uh, much literature that had to do in the wake of uh, the Civil War and how, especially for Black authors in the United States, it became an ambivalent symbol, sometimes redemption, sometimes horror, but uh, the Ark becomes laden with possibilities. Um, there are many, right?
1: Yeah. Well, it's also the I think the way in which the arc is indexed both to Genesis but also Exodus, and so to two very different narrative trajectories, right? And the 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 way in which it it takes on a a, a kind of counter arc status uh, in in some represent in some representations, so that it's uh, I'm thinking of Sun Ra and the Orchestra um sort of specifically in a a kind of cultural counter-arc um or a soul boat um in in Henry Duma's um arc of bones story um but yeah I mean we I mean the the arc has uh a kind of core constitutive very important kind of role in african-american literature art and culture and and I think one of the things that that we felt was the that was just a profoundly important part of the um and also speaking back i think to some of the programming the allegorical programming of the ark in the 16th 17th century um so that though that was really the most exciting place where something was really happening as far as we were concerned uh in terms of the the sort of trying to open the possibilities of what the arc narrative might generate and I'm, you know we can I mean I'm just going to turn into a list of names which you can encounter in the chapter if you want uh from Hortense Spillers to uh Jennifer Morgan Christina Sharp Fred Moten and Co I mean it, it's a I mean it yeah I mean I I think we're, we we if, if if we had a role it was putting them all together in one chapter.
0: Right. And one of the stories that we love and linger with too is her students, our eyes were are watching God. We love that story for many reasons. It's just brilliant, but it imagines a post-flood, well, actually it imagines a flooded world and tries to remember people that history worked really hard to forget. Uh, it reconfigures terms of refuge to make them more local and locates what would be an arc in any other story to places like porches homes that you inhabit for a while uh lives created from contingency happenstance but also an assertion of agency and happiness with the main character and there's a relentlessness to her that i think really makes that story work well as a counter narrative to um to an art story,
1: but yeah, and it's also the sort of the way in which something profoundly productive comes out of out of something so horrid.
2: It's great. Stowaways figure heavily in the book. Um, you conceptualize metaphor as a kind of stowaway. Uh, Methuselah, uh, woodworms, all stowaways. You argue that listening to stowaways can help decenter the human, and it can remind us of the boundedness and uh, limitations of human-centered narratives. Why might thinking of metaphors as a kind of stowaway allow us to see the arc story differently?
0: And one thing that comes to mind from that is that, in fact, the arc story is a metaphor that is stowed away in our own imagination and keeps unfolding certain kinds of thinking for us uh, without us being, (laughs) being the ones who launch that thinking. That is, arc thinking can inhabit your cognitive frame and make you expect certain outcomes, expect certain plots to unfold. Uh, that aren't necessarily the ones you would choose if you had some distance from the metaphor that's generating the stories that you're in. Um, we we love the idea of stowaways on the ark. It's the refusal to say that the ark is enough and you're going to place aboard it all kinds of things that you would like to see saved. And also the kinds of things, too, that people would be surprised that wind up inside Um, Some of them will be plot devices, some will be actual human beings like Shakespeare in his plays or frequent stowaways on Noah's Ark. Unicorns wind up there an inordinate number of times. Uh, All the things that you didn't want to leave behind so the world can begin again, wind up being placed in that ark to be rediscovered.
1: And the, I mean... And metaphor is a process of, uh, I mean, you take two things and you enter them into relation to one another. And usually there are unintended consequences as a result of that process. Uh, sometimes they're good and productive and sometimes they're like, oh no, oh gosh, no. Uh, right? And so there's always, a, it's also, I think, to a certain extent, the, uh, the. I mean, you, you sort of, in, you, the question emerged from a sense that, Stowaways enable us to kind of question uh, sort of human primacy, but I think the in part it's also just the sort of relationship between a maker and the process of making the fact that you may, you know, set a process into motion. But the but the the what what you end up making by its end will not be what you intended. There are going to be a series of unintended consequences, partly because it's about a a, a sheaf of different agencies that work together. Um, so the. Um, but this notion then that the the ark can never be uh, sort of is always going to actually produce things that stories might produce things that were never intended to go into them also, and that's also sort of partly what drives the chapter, as a I think we pitch it as a a sort of uh, a kind of um, uh, an in a pre-landfall intervention whereby everyone is safely escorted off uh, the ark uh in ways that does not reduce who and what they may be um so that every, everyone's invited off in a way that um and and you have to keep checking because there are going to be more there's going to be more on the ark than it was ever put on you know i mean you you sort of mentioned woodworms i i'm sort of i mean the one that the the sort of i think the one that we love to a certain extent is the arc that becomes sentient <laughs>
0: So we, one of the things that we recently came to realize, too, is that the arc and this is um, the in the novel Aurora, uh, which is written by a thing called ship uh, ship is the sentient arc. Any intergenerational spaceship is an arc uh, and ship launches the story of its own becoming into the novel and um, it is a kind of AI that's self-narrating and also loves its cargo and there's something that's so beautiful about this particular version of the arc. Um, let, let me put this another way many of the arcs that we encountered would be absolutely horrifying to be trapped inside they're fascistic they control your lives there's a real terror that can be part of life on the ark. in kin stanley robinson's aurora uh, the ship comes to recognize that it has a responsibility to the people that dwell aboard it and even comes to love them and sacrifices itself so that some of them can be saved. But it's also a story of a kind of artificial intelligence coming into a sentience um, that uh, I think shows a version of arc thinking that's weirdly affirmative and utopian. And it's very sad when the ship dies at the end. It is very sad,
1: though I'm not sure, Jeffrey, that everyone on board the spaceship will share, uh, shares our, uh, our our sense of attachment to ship because they're not privileged to be able to have ships growing self-narration as they're <laughs> on board. It's also the beginning of law of the ship also actually acting as a uh, intervening uh, legal authority over the um, the the passengers um so it's a it's a it, it it um it's uh um it yeah it's I, I, my god is raising as we speak uh sorry
0: you no know, no it's a story of possibilities but also yeah. limits. and julian the other thing that we know is that the ship uh can't see the animals aboard the ship meaning that the ship cares deeply for the humans but the animals are just food uh they, really there's there's no care for anything besides the human, there's no. So
1: it becomes. So what it what it becomes is a sort of something that, in terms of our thinking, in terms of sort of what's interest really, I think interesting. Or I think what Jeffrey's sort of um, saying is that it's in it's one of those occasions in which the structure of the arc that's being made actually sort of narratively and this is what Kim Stanley Robinson does starts to try and think itself what are the duties of an arc does arc have duties uh what what is what what's the status of a container am I just a container what happens when you tell a container that it's got to build a story or tell the story? Is this a history? What do I leave in? How do I put out? All of these sort of fundamental questions get asked very explicitly. So it's a a fascinating novel in those respects.
0: The novel, a fascinating novel about conservation, but also about the limits and possibilities of narrative. So narrative and conservation become the same thing there. Uh, Awesome, really deep and probing questions about arc thinking that we we love as part of this book and i have to say i also love that this book can do something like look all the way back to the epic of gilgamesh one of our first recorded stories that we have all the way forward into contemporary science fiction and climate fiction and show that there is a line that connects all of these things to each other as a shared products of the human imagination as we think about the limits of what should be saved, what refuge is, what we want to remember.
2: I've asked you to read a passage from the first chapter uh, titled How to Think Like an Ark. And this is an excerpt from the final section of that chapter, which is subtitled Envoy. Right. So it's the the
1: launching, as it were, of, of everything that follows.
2: So in the beginning, God created the
1: heavens and the earth. This act of origination did not start from nothing. The world was formless, clothed in darkness and full of water. The breath of God or divine wind, Ruach Elohim, swept across the surface of the deep. After inaugurating night and day through the declaration of light, God parted these waters into an above and a below, a celestial vault full of rain and an ever restless sea. God ordered the cosmos into regions and time into days. Dry land was drawn from general flood. The firmament blazed. Earth and ocean were populated with all manner of creatures, including the first humans, lords of a walled garden. The world was full of life, and it was good. God rested the deepest rest.
0: In the beginning of the beginning again, God opened the windows of the vault of heaven and unleashed the fountains of the deep. Drowning the still young world. The creatures fashioned in God's own image had filled its lands with strife. All was in upheaval. Things had admittedly gone bad from the start. For their trespass, Adam and Eve were banished from Eden's enclosed perfection. Their descendants had built cities, engendered tumult, proliferated wrongdoing. The world was full of peril, and it was not good. As separated waters rushed into union, the force of flood obliterated the life that God had with such care fashioned, creatures that Adam had deigned and overseen. Yet, in an art carefully constructed at God's command, obedient Noah preserved a representative selection of kin and beasts against the arrival of weatherborne catastrophe. After long months at sea, this meticulously curated archive came to rest atop a mountain. A new covenant was sealed with a rainbow the promise of never again. Peace, doves and olive branches, a second genesis. The work of repopulating the devastated earth commenced, and yet the descendants of Noah again spread wrongdoing across the emptied land. The sea rises. I'd like
2: to ask you about um, craft, You know, how you go about putting together paragraphs like these. Um, I should say, so um, Julian read the first paragraph, Jeffrey read the second paragraph, and then the sea rises is set aside as a single sentence paragraph. Um, What stylistic choices uh, jump out to you about these uh, paragraphs?
0: I love the paragraph because I don't think we made any choices. We just wrote it. Uh, We wrote it together somehow, and I don't even know when. It's clear to me in reading it that we are riffing on Genesis. Uh, there's a point in the book we call uh, all later arc stories Genesis fanfiction. I think this is like this is kind of Genesis fanfiction in action, where we're yeah. taking some of the modes of phrase there, and you know we've looked at Genesis in many languages and in many translations, and just riffing on the possibilities within those that variety of translations, but also trying to make it into something that's new. Julian, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like I know you're writing well enough I know what I love about your writing to say that we both really love words. We love thinking with words and seeing how they're expressed. And um, to me, there's something that's finely crafted about those sentences without them being overwrought. Because we didn't, we didn't overthink this. It just came from an invitation when, or when, when it became obvious to us that a book, that our book needed a clearer introduction that would set its terms better. This came out as a way of launching readers into what follows. Julian, well, I think
1: what what Jeffrey is alluding to there is that we had a wonderful introduction which was perfectly clear to him and i that had the ungainly title what is called arc thinking without a question mark which um is uh actually probably actually in full disclosure a reference to Heidegger and his mode of thinking uh, in terms of posing a question in a, in a very mechanical way to draw attention to the peculiarity of it. And there's, what is what is called arc thinking is this? It's a horrible sentence that doesn't quite work because there's too many objects. And um, and so we had an introduction that um, was really a, a, an attempt to articulate a method. It was big. It was it was really a placeholder for us in terms of everything that then happened in the book and so the envoy or the envoy um sort of emerges i think as a as a complete i mean at the end of a process i mean we the the writing here actually is probably from very near the beginning a lot of it uh of things we'd written but it comes back in a completely different place doing a very different job at the end here so um in other words we just wrote it is sort of true uh it's like true of everything but the um, but this chapter was probably the one that changed the most in the course of of, um, of you know thinking about the book, and it lived with us for the longest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 the the what what really is is happening here is a is a launch. I mean, a launch that's 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 absolutely embedded in a, a sort of thinking. This is our reading of, of the. This is our reading essentially of the Genesis story right here. Right. And the last paragraph, the sea rises, is a completely ambiguously con- uh, sort of te- in, in its in its temporality, because you're in the Genesis story. But unfortunately, you're also now uh, very now. Um, and um, and so that launches or is a, sort of provides a kind of 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 vantage point onto the chapters that follow um but yeah i mean you, you sort of whenever whenever we read whenever you read i think a, a passage that you've worked on collaboratively with someone else i think the thing that i always love is that you hear echoes of what you think is your voice and then in the moment that you're hearing the echo of that you're wondering if you're in fact hearing the echo of you remembering someone else's voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a wonderfully um, sort of strange experience.
0: It is, and it gets at uh, how much fun it was to write this book together, and these just moments where things unfolded so beautifully. There's plenty of struggle in writing any book and i think that first chapter julian just gave a great narration of that that first chapter was a struggle and we kept revising it and you know we're really grateful to our readers of that chapter but the one thing that they always made clear is all right it does a lot of good work but my god it was so good to get beyond that chapter and into the actual book and we recognize that if we not if we were not more welcoming we would not be launching the book sufficiently well. And so what we tried to do in, especially in that envoy was to give a kind of a a gliding way into the arc project itself, rather than to to place impediments in front of any potential reader. What I see in
2: these uh, paragraphs also is a very, and I guess this is echoing Genesis, a very direct style, um, really strong subjects and verbs um, r- rather short sentences. Um, as as a as a choice. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, and I I love the way you're you're rewriting this familiar story. Um, their descendants had built cities, engendered tumult. W- a great way to put it, engendered tumult. You know, uh, proliferated wrongdoing. Um, it, this book was collaboratively written. Um, And we've gestured towards uh, some of that work uh, in this conversation. Um, How did you decide to write this together? And uh, how was this project enriched by being a co-written project?
0: The last time I tried to narrate this, I emphasized too much that we were in a whiskey bar. So I'm going to be (laughs) silent here and let Julian give... The completely sober narration of how this started.
1: How did things start? Gosh, what a strange—it's oh, it, a strange thing to remember. We, we. Well, I mean, usually they start out of the ruins of something else. So, we, I mean, but the the truth. But the to sort of give you a flavour of sort of. I think we we wrote the the book through through using Google Docs, um, and the thing I love about collaborative writing with Google Docs is it's rather like you get to believe that there are elves and they do make shoes um and um there's a uh in in other words there's a i mean i think a lot of the time with writing the the for me the difficulty is you know you get stuck or you get you know or you get in a rut or you go down a rabbit hole and um it's just lovely to go into a document and sort of see someone has sort of either cut something you've written or run with it or put something else different or just put a little note in this goes here exclamation point or something like that and so it's a it's i think it's a if one of the i think perils of sort of solo academic work is a certain loneliness I, mean, I think it's 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 there's also a, a kind, of, and this is sort of probably the the whiskey bar uh, is the materialization of the companionship that I think comes with co-writing, um, and um, it's a, a sort of intellectual and personal friendship. Um, that is where, uh, and, and, just a, and also a, a, a certain egging each other on too, I think. We were um, really
0: good at egging each other on. I think that's been one of the secrets to getting our stuff done. But we also, we wrote synchronously and asynchronously. Right? Yeah. So there were times when, because I'm in a different time zone, I'd come in and Julian had written something in the morning, or you know, I'd written something in the afternoon and Julian saw mm-hmm. it in the morning, but then we traveled together and oh. sometimes we would sit at a coffee shop and simply write together at the same time into the document. So well,
1: yeah, and, and also something that I didn't, I mean everyone talks about writing, but also the, if you remember the, the I think the last time we met before the pandemic hit, what we discovered completely to our surprise, because we didn't think we were being productive enough, was uh the benefits of live re-reading, live rereading. Um, I mean, because sometimes I mean the the I think the it's it's this and what I mean by that is that there's just a moment sometimes in the life of a project or something you're writing where you kind of have to sit down and kind of go so what have I got what where is this a sort of stock taking moment and it's really it's it, it's it's easy to put off and it's easy not to do because you you're scared to find out that you got less than you thought or in fact um you now really understand what you were supposed to be doing but you've got to do it and there was something incredibly valuable about sitting down and just rereading together what we had done and being able to actually then have that kind of in-person conversation um, about well what do you think we've got where what, you know and 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 for us what luckily emerged was a kind of surprised sense of we had rather a lot more than we thought we
0: had um and, and Julian I really want to emphasize too that it's the together that mattered here so yeah. you know you can read your own book out loud and it I think that's a useful exercise I do it even for solo writing etc but you can still either overestimate what you've done Or underestimate it when you're doing it as a constant reality check with a collaborator. I think it's much harder to go wrong. Uh, The other thing that I will say, too, is that I don't know that this book would be in the world if I had not done it as a collaboration with Julian. I mean, I... During the time we're working on this project, I took on a new job. I'm a university administrator at a really large state school and my job is all consuming. And I think that if I were writing a project like this by myself, I would have put it on the shelf and say, you know what, that is either for never or for that's for 10 years from now. Julian's my friend, I really enjoy his company, and I really enjoyed showing up for this project, so it meant that this project was a haven and a refuge for me to be able to carve out some other part of my life where I could continue to do it, and that was especially true during the pandemic, but writing with someone is just um, so very different from the solitude of writing a project by yourself. And I think Julian and Julian and I are very lucky in that we're good friends. We really trust each other. Um, there's no. we were
1: very fortunate in Minnesota, in University of Minnesota Press, it, and, and and Doug Amato. We did uh, everything. Actually,
0: yeah, yeah, yep, yep, absolutely. To write for a good press where we'd both worked and to have that confidence that it would be accepted for what it was. Um, oughts- pretty powerful
2: yeah and we should shout out the to the university of minnesota press you know the the book is is amazingly well put together the cover is awesome Um, you love the cover um, yes um, in terms of collaboration i suppose communication is really important as well Um, in terms of you know maybe one author isn't going to be able to work on something until the end of the semester or something like that do you have uh, advice for people that might consider collaborating um strategies you found useful in working together i think
1: every different i mean i think one thing i would say having i think we both collaborated with 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 quite a few people in various ways uh in terms of writing and editing and i think part of it would be to to realize that every relationship is going to be different and that what worked with one person might not work with another and you really really have to um work through resistances early on i think if you remember jeffrey the very first time we went somewhere to Frostburg, and the first live writing we did together we had to have a, a series of conversations about pronoun use right because i think i i was resisting using we initially and i had to i had to get comfortable work i mean the wonderful thing i always joke is sort of like you know the great thing about collaborative writing is that when you use we it's actually a valid reference as opposed to a catacresis it's it's a, it, you know because there are two of you so you actually are a unit so it's a valid reference uh which is which is very nice rather than a kind of false inclusivity um and um so the but but that actually that has to get created you have to feel comfortable and and sometimes you have to check back in are we actually comfortable being the subject of that sentence and what that sentence is doing because that sentence is also sort of the book as a whole jeffrey what would you want to say yeah
0: you know, i would want to say that it's the trust that really matters so mm-hmm. julie and i do not ever work in a document with trap changes each person has carte blanche to do what they want. And, you know, there's a conversation sometimes about here's what I did. What do you think about this? Most of the time it was, I love it, but sometimes it was, well, I loved what was there. And can we talk about this? Um, I think without the trust, it's just not fun. I, you know, I've collaborated enough where I've lost friendships over collaboration, collaboration, writing makes you vulnerable Mm -hmm. um and i think if both collaborators can recognize that vulnerability and be honest with each other and like show up emotionally as well as intellectually uh, then it's hard for the collaboration to go wrong that's also really important too to be able to tell your collaborator when you can't show up for a while or when they need to carry something for a while and it all circles back
2: that's great advice i think and and just to, to backtrack with the we you mean uh, using "we" as uh, two authors, m- multiple authors on a project? As know, a... Yeah, right. It's, you know, it's a, a, yeah, kind of coercive. Okay. Like, of course, you agree. Well, no,
1: I mean, it's not necessarily. I mean, it's a, it, yeah. I mean, in another, I'm thinking about stam- Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an, a, a a large conversation that you can track in in um, uh, about the 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 sort of consequences of pronoun use in academic prose. And I think that's that's actually really so. I mean, part of it is the sort of the the question like you, right, can sometimes really default to uh, a kind of false inclusivity because you're positing the other person as you're actually forcing them, and it's it's a very powerful technique, and and we both <laughs> use it <laughs> to an extent, but we right as a certain uh, various people, te- you know, in terms of temperament have a, have a and for, for, I mean, also in terms of standpoint theory, the the kind of there's a kind of false uh inclusivity that we can generate um so there's something kind of wonderfully mundane about it actually being no it really is we
0: it's just we it's Yeah, but also it's two people but if you'd like to be part of our we yeah. welcome aboard you know it's it, it gestures towards something bigger than just two and we hope that we opened a door through which people feel very welcome to step right. and have this world for a while and if they want to take it to work and go somewhere else with it, that's awesome. Uh, it would be the the greatest thing that you could do is to find something here to run with.
2: I okay, mean, this is great. I love talking about um, style and academic writing and, and things like the discussion about we. As individual writers, what are your um, your values as stylists? Uh, do you have practices or habits that you found helpful?
0: Julian, I feel like you helped me to overcome my most self-destructive habits when it comes to writing. Meaning that, for me, writing is a little too um, of much of an ascetic practice of just like getting down to it and. Staying with the writing and you know, even my last book that I wrote before this solitary book, Stone and Ecology of the Inhuman, I overwrote that by 30,000 words because I, I'm so obsessive that I can do that. I severely injured my shoulder by being at my laptop too long and putting on my weight on it. Like there was too much um, solitariness that was in that. By writing with someone else and someone who has a, a joy in writing, it helped me to move beyond the obsessiveness that I think uh, too often motivates some of the writing I do and to open up the world a little bit.
1: Um, I think overwriting is just a peril if you're on your own. I mean, I, I mean, mean, I mean, it, um, it, it just, it's, it's what you do. Um, and um, uh, I I mean, I play lots of games as a writer uh, just in terms of sort of, you know, um, I sort of feel like um, I'm happiest when I'm I'm happiest when the chapter goes linear in the meaning that you've got in you've got an introduction you've launched it so for example that mo- um, the um, anyway I, I won't I sorry I was going to refer but ba- uh, so, uh, I realise I'm referring back to the, the the passage that we didn't read <laughs> that we would have read but never mind you may have to re-edit this of um, inclusion and exclusion yeah right no 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 I was the yeah, uh, right it was the uh the the Noah, in other words when you've got your introduction and you kind of know the texts that are coming next but you don't really know what you're going to say about them you just know that there's a you, sort of an an order to what's happening next that uh you know that this 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 text is probably going to come first and then that then you know so that that's a joyous moment to me because you're in that moment when the business of writing is showing up to work out. It's really about getting to reread while writing at that point. Um, but the, um, I don't I don't know. I always think it's a miracle every day I get up and write something. I'm sorry. I'm, I have very low expectations. I'm, I'm sort of, a, <laughs> yeah. I tell people to sort of sit at their desks and practice being at their desk. That's what I do. And eventually I'll get so bored playing solitaire or finding things not to do that I'll actually write something. And then I won't remember I've written it and I'll be very pleased i wrote something today
0: yeah and julian i don't know do you do you write in a journal or keep a notebook or anything like that No, yeah, i'm too lazy for that see i because i'm too obsessive i do jot things down in a notebook that i always carry with me and i i feel like if i can't put something into words i can't understand it for myself um, but that can be taken to an extreme sometimes i i remind myself that the life of the mind will kill you if you let it i mean there's you know, a way in which it can just become too much
1: i don't i tell lot, i don't keep a journal. what i do do and this is actually something that we did very early it was like the first remember when we drew the book yes right and the um uh i'll 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 keep I I find my, my problem with journals is they're books, and I just never go back and reread what I've said. Uh, so it's like I can put. So I've, I found stuff when I did try to do that years ago. It's like that was a great idea. Twenty years have passed, and I've not revisited that page because it, it it just never happens. So I do yeah. I do sort of keep things lying on my desk, and they might be there for like you know a decade or something, staring me at, staring me in the face. But we actually did draw the book as a kind of mutual uh parallel play uh note making exercise
0: and julian we, did we do that in a whiskey bar or not we did do it in a whiskey okay. bar but so I don't
1: think whiskey was being consumed uh the not that i'm against whiskey i just don't think we were having whiskey there it's just um
0: oh we were sitting in a whiskey bar drinking water as i recall yes
1: yeah that's right that's and
0: it. Um, it was fun to even diagram the book. So, diagramming the yeah. book was imagining a project that we might embark upon together. And a lot of the book we actually wrote is contained in that diagram. And a lot in that diagram had to be discarded because it was not the book that we wrote. I'm, yeah.
2: I'm, uh, I do want to circle back to something you said, uh, Jeffrey, uh, that the life of the mind will kill you, just as if I let would... it. What's if, that? Sorry. If you let it if you let it i mean that is something to keep in mind for sure for sure um and um yeah, hopefully some listeners can adopt some of these strategies for yeah. making an academic life livable for sure
0: well and, and the one other thing that i'll say too is that you know julian talked about uh having a like i i don't have a journal where it's a dear diary i have a I always have a notebook that I can write things down and I redo that not so that I can go back and reread them. In fact, I seldom do that. I do it so I can get it out of my head. It's really important for me to be able to put those things somewhere else so that they don't have the grasp on my brain that they would otherwise have. And sometimes I do go back to them or sometimes I'm drawing a picture or a diagram or I'm using the act of writing in a book uh, to liberate the kinds of thought that I can't do if I'm typing at a computer, which I find incredibly tedious. But writing on paper seems to open up my creativity in a way that um, a computer screen just doesn't.
2: And I think that's a great practice as well. Drawing the book together, or you know, trying to establish some kind of. shape. Well, we drew an arc. Sorry. We drew an arc. We drew <laughs>
0: We drew an arc with escape pods, as I recall, yeah. and bodies in the water, and <laughs> mapped out all kinds of crazy possibilities for arcs. Do you still have it? In fact, we <laughs> took a picture of it and then we sent it to Doug Armado at University of Minnesota Press. And we're like, we're writing a book. Are you interested? It's really <laughs> just that picture. <laughs> and all hail, <hell> Doug. He's <laughs> like, it sounds intriguing.
1: It, it, this probably the 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 um, the notes are probably uh, belong to that that aspect of book writing where it's it's uh, authors get overly fond of certain parts of their books, and and the the, the big the big disappointment is the how disappointing they prove to others.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there's that expression, uh, kill your darlings. Or whatever. Oh,
1: yes, yes, yes. It says Samuel Johnson. I think Is it's Samuel more vicious Johnson? than that. Oh, yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Um, okay. Keeping all of that in mind, that, that's a legendary book proposal story, um, emailing the picture. It's written on a bus ticket, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: but not- But, John, it's also a story about how it's relationships that you form over time that can be sustaining, right? So for both Julian and I, there was obviously a time in our career where we but, didn't have an editor that was interested in right, work. Totally. That we were doing. and totally. You and know, we're lucky enough that we both have writing records and have worked with the same person for a long time where that has enabled us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do.
1: I mean, the, the piece of advice I got, having worried about audience hugely, was i was i mean and and you know i'm not sure i mean when people give advice it's always dangerous because you're not sure sometimes we interpret advice (laughs) which was never actually intended i think is, is one of the things i've realized um that it was an idle comment that someone said to you and you interpret it as life advice uh and then vice versa you miss it in my case i was realized that i was getting lots of advice i just didn't realize it was advice um and um the, and that was um sometimes you need to um um just just write and find out who wants to be in conversation with you uh as opposed to you know being worried about joining a conversation which is bad writing advice largely I mean most people would say that's the reverse of what you're supposed to do you're supposed to find a conversation and find a way to enter it um and I think to a certain I mean when, when you when our collaboration really, predates that in the sense that we began collaborating because we both liked each other's writing and it started out of a good eight-year period of simply having liked each other's writing and sharing the same spaces um and um working out whether we liked each other as people or just liked each other's writing right It's, it's a misrecognition sometimes and um and then that turned into running a seminar together at the Shakespeare Association of America, and then uh, co-editing a book of essays that tried to reimagine what a very inclusive, time-bound, occasion-specific uh, group of essays would look like. That was very different from a, a kind of sort of um, uh, sort of edited book collection or something like that. And um, and then that turned into us supporting each other through, uh, uh, through stone and then of sheep, oranges and yeast mm-hmm. and realizing that we had this other project that we wanted to do together. So it's a very long, it, it evolved. It, it wasn't a, uh, you know, we're going to start co-writing. It was actually very late in you know comparative, you know, very recent development.
0: Mm-hmm. And it does tell a story that I think it's easy to lose track of now in a, so many universities value productivity humanities productivity works differently it takes a long time to do a project that really matters uh, noah's archive has what eight years of work probably ultimately behind it but anyway yeah. a very a very long 15
1: build. something like that 2014.
0: And so um but i think it would not It would not be the same project if we had rushed through it. It took the time that it needed, and there's no other way to describe it.
2: So now that Noah's Archive is out in the world, um, what what are you turning your attention to? Is there a scholarly project that that you're at work on, a course that you're developing, um, or or maybe a hobby uh, outside of academia that you want to dedicate more time to?
0: I'm going to track down my two children who just haven't seen me in years, and I think they're living. So no, <laughs> I'm trying to. Re- I I am not really dedicated to uh, more scholarly projects at this point. I, a You're lot running
1: of my, a small country,
0: <laughs> a lot of my energy is going into university administration. So, I'm, um, um, John. I would say if there's a project that I'm putting time in right now, it is working with other people who care about the future and the vitality of the humanities in the United States at a time of great peril. So I've been trying to do that level of work rather than writing. Um, Julian, how about you?
1: well i'm i'm i mean we i mean we're, i mean you catch us at a, at a at a fascinating moment in a collaborative relationship because we're, to a certain extent the book is done and has been done for a while so our relationship is evolving as friendship and also as a kind of open question as to whether we'll do something together again which i hope we will uh but what that will be oh, yeah. who knows yeah no That's no no no, say, no
0: no we no, don't no. know what it is but i'm sure there is something but the good thing about being friends julian is that right. we don't have to know what that something is absolutely
1: right? yeah and 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 the other thing is sometimes it the, the 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 bittersweet part of a collaboration is that you realize that it's over um and so ending this book was a lot of fun but also a heartache in that sense because it it um it, it marked the end of of writing together mm-hmm. uh of making something and then you look at it and it's oh gosh it's a book gosh it's so much less exciting than it was um and the um I, I'm I'm in the early days of 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 um of uh a a very uh uh of a project that I hope by the end will seem less strange than it is about Shakespeare and political speech and about strange odd references to Shakespeare plays and political movements that um look like they are going they refer to performances but actually are just, Part and parcel of an extended kind of ongoing political protest. So, just as a as a as a quick quick example of that, um, the um, there was a anti-nuclear protest camp um, in um, England in the nineteen eighties, the Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp, which uh, has uh, a much deserved uh, sort of sense of importance to it in terms of free speech and 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 protest and the women's movement. And um, and and a potential performance of Macbeth that is associated with it. I say potential because I think there's there's almost no evidence that it actually ever ever came to be, but it, it is it is thematically almost it is is sort of uh, strung through this. This is a, a a sort of a I'm sort of rethinking who I am in terms of performance theory to a certain extent also, and sort of what it means to uh, to invoke a Shakespeare play um, and uh, resignify it as part of a, of a political event. I won't say anything more because I don't really have anything to say.
2: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> early days. Congratulations on the publication of Noah's archive. Um, and we'll keep our eyes out for um, those future projects. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jeffrey and Julian. Thank you, thank you John. John. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Julie.